somebody, it gets attributed to Woody Allen, but I've heard a number of people say this, is that most of our life happens while we're waiting around for our life to happen. Have you ever been stuck in that place where you're in a place and you think, all right, once I'm done with this, once I'm done with this part of school, once I'm done with this job, once I'm free of this relationship, once I'm done being sick in this kind of way, then my life can really start. It's something that's just kind of grooved into us to think that the best is always out there. And there's some sort of thing that needs to end or there's some sort of thing that we need to do to be able to enter into life at its very best. When Jesus showed up, probably his primary task in his teaching was to try to change people's mind on that. The people that he was talking to, the Jewish people of of Palestine, thought, if we're really going to live the life that God has for us, we need to get rid of the Romans. And also, if we're really going to lead the life that God has for us, we're going to have to clean ourselves up first as well. And this was the big fight that Jesus had with the Pharisees that you see over and over again in the New Testament. The Pharisees were really threatened by Jesus because they were really committed to this idea that if we could just for one day all obey God in the way that we were supposed to, then God will come and give us the life that we as God's people are supposed to have. And Jesus completely flipped that on its head. Jesus, as he proclaims what he called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, as it's in the Gospel of Matthew, was saying that this life that God wants to give to us is here now. It's not out there. It's not in the future. It's here now. And what do you have to do to get it? It's not something you have to obey your way into. It's not something you have to give things up to get into. That You just have to open your hands and receive it. It's not something that has to be earned. It's just a gift that you need to be able to receive. And so that's what we're talking about here in this series, The Good and Beautiful Life, is the reality is, is it wasn't just first century Jews that get stuck in that. It's not just first century Jews that think that the good life that I want to have is somehow out there. And it's not people from the first century that get stuck thinking, there must be something I need to do to be able to deserve this. The whole idea of the good and beautiful life is trying to live out the reality of the kingdom of God in our lives. To live out the reality that God is here right now to give us his very best. And if we could just yield ourselves to it and begin to live in that reality, that when we finally do reach the end and what what gets called heaven a lot of the time, we're going to find out that the life we've been living right now was actually just the beginning of that. And it's it's available to us here and now. And so in the last number of weeks, John has been talking about 
different ways following Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount about how we can set aside some of those things that are barriers to us, things like anger and lust and lying that keep us away from the truth and the peace and the sense of, of, of um, just receiving from God that those things get in the way of and that those, those are things that kind of block our vision of what God is trying to do. But the thing is, as we deal with the reality of the kingdom, is there's another thing. Right at the end of what John talked about last week, of letting your yes be yes and your no be no, of living without lying, Jesus pointed out that if you don't do this, then you're sort of aligning yourselves with evil or with the evil one or with brokenness, the brokenness that's built into the world. And here's the catch in this, of living in the kingdom of God is we live this out in a broken world. We live this out in a world right now that is not as it is supposed to be. And so there's this tension that people talk about, that with the kingdom of God, it is already here, but not yet here. And so as you look at the Bible, it talks about that. That tension is there. As Christians, we look forward to the time when God will create a new heaven and a new earth and everything will be restored. But right now, we live out this new life that we have in Christ. We live out the reality of the kingdom of God in the midst of a world that's broken, in a world that has a lot of bad stuff in it. So there's this, it's already here, but it's not quite. And we live it out around what the text talked about last week, around evil and evildoers. And our passage today, which is the very next one in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, is going to pick right up at that same spot, just as the last one warned us that if we don't get on track with what God wants to do with us in Christ, we're moving into the realm of brokenness. We're embracing the brokenness of the world. In this next section, Jesus is going to begin to talk to us about what we do when we are the victims of that brokenness, when we are victims of the bad stuff in the world. And so really the things that we're going to see today is we're going to talk together about two things, brokenness and power. And Jesus is first going to talk to us about how when we experience brokenness expressed in power, how do we handle that? How do we handle it when people are hurtful to us? when they're unfair to us, when it's not just the normal, hey, basic way that people bump into each other from time to time and give each other a hard time, but actual, you know, bad intent. How do we address that? How do we handle that? And then Jesus is going to help us do that. Because as much as we get in the way, also it's the things that are done to us sometimes get between us and the good and beautiful life that God wants us to live. And so that's what we're going to see. We're going to see that Jesus is going to show us how to live in a life that is not as it is supposed to be. And that's part of the tension, too. As God's people, we can begin, and I think we all have this drilled into us, but as you begin to follow Jesus, your eyes begin to open the fact that there is a reality, a possibility, a goodness that is out there that we often forget is possible. And we begin to see that, but then we begin to see the tension between what could be and what is. And so this is going to give us the power to live in a world that is not like it is supposed to be. And it will help us make the move 
from brokenness to wholeness. So we begin in this passage in in Matthew 5 today of talking about what to do when we are the victims of brokenness, of sin, of evil. And then it's going to talk at the end about how we handle this, how we move towards wholeness along the way. It's a great passage. I'm really stoked about this. So if you want to follow along in a a real live Bible, like like one of these, um, you know, this is is Matthew 5, um, starting at verse 38. Okay, Matthew 5, starting at verse 38. Um, And if you want to follow along on your device or just follow along on the screen, that's where it'll be. This is John's Bible, and he has this underlined. That's interesting. Um, But in any case, it's interesting. Check with me later. I'll show you what he has underlined and what he doesn't. Okay. So, here we go. Jesus begins, is this phrase you've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, and then he quotes something out of Israel's tradition, out of, out of the Hebrew Bible, and out of Israel's tradition. So what's going on here is that Jesus is very self-consciously speaking to the people of Israel, to the Jews of Palestine, as if he is a new Moses. So it's not a coincidence that this is the Sermon on the Mount, on a mountain, The reason Jesus does this, as you might remember, in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, after the people of Israel are set free, and they're out in the wilderness, and God makes his covenant with his people, after that, from Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, and hears from the Lord, and the Lord gives them the law, the direction, the Torah, that this is how you live your life as my people. So what Jesus is doing here in the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew's presenting Jesus as a new Moses, that this is the new way of life for the new people of God that are going to be those who know and follow Jesus. And so that's what Jesus is doing here in this. You've heard it said this, but this, Jesus is saying, look, out of your tradition, out of what God has said up to this point, this is how we've understood things. But from this point on, as I begin to rule in this world, here's how it's going to be for us from this point on. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This was how Israel was supposed to handle bad stuff. When people did hurtful things to each other among God's people, it meant that any kind of punishment that was brought out by God's people had to be about equal to the offense. Now we often talk about this as if the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is if it's somewhat barbaric, um, unless we want to be barbaric. You know, we're angry at the person who did the bad thing, and it's like, yeah, that should happen to them too. But in context, when God first gave this, this to his people through Moses, this was actually something that stood for justice and was there to help. Because the standard in the ancient world was punishment depended on who the victim was and also on who the perpetrator was. So if I'm a wealthy, noble person who's attached to the royal family, and I get angry and I kill a slave, nothing happens to me because I'm an important person and the slave is not. Because there's a different set of rules for important people and a different set of rules for unimportant people. 
And what an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was designed to do was to create a sense of justice with punishment. That the punishment had to fit the crime, and it was the same punishment for everyone. So whether a slave committed the offense or a super important person committed the offense, it was the same punishment. If an important person was the victim or a slave was the victim, the punishment was the same. So this was actually, in context, a really good thing. But what Jesus is doing next here is he's not really arguing with that. He's saying that now, as God's people in the kingdom of God, we're supposed to do things in a really different way. That up to this point, establishing justice, resisting evil in this world was our thing. If we're the people of God, that's part of what we're here to do, is to make sure things are right. And so it was the job of the people of Israel, if somebody lost an eye because somebody was super careless or malevolent, it was the job of everybody else to come in and make sure that person was punished. If a tooth was lost, then a tooth was lost. But the idea to make sure the punishment was just and fair, but also to make sure it happened. That that was the role of God's people. That's the fact that there is brokenness and evil in the world. It was the job of the people of Israel to try to stamp that out in their midst. But look at where Jesus goes next. What he tells them instead, he says, but I tell you, don't resist evil or the evildoer. It's hard to tell how it's translated there. And that word resist, I I was looking this up, it's really kind of interesting. Most of the time, it carries the idea of standing up. And so maybe that's a better way to get what Jesus is saying. He's actually saying, don't stand up to evil. So this is, this is curious because these, he's telling God's people, when you guys, when other people get at you, don't fight it. Don't stand up to it. And he goes on and gives three very specific things. And this was, a, this was not just people being you know, slightly annoying to one another from time to time. You might remember that the people Jesus was talking to, Jesus himself, they were occupied by the Roman Empire at this time. And so they were God's people knowing they were supposed to be able to rule, and instead they were being ruled by the Romans. And so what Jesus is really giving here, in a way that really doesn't quite make sense to us right away, because we're God's people. Aren't we supposed to fight for what's right? Shouldn't we do that? Shouldn't we fight for what's right? Well, I think what Jesus is actually doing here is giving his people another way to fight. And so what he does is gives them three quick things that are things that the Romans could compel them to do. And he tells them to respond in a completely different way. You may be familiar with this, but look at what Jesus says here. He says, look, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. In Roman law, a Roman official could slap somebody as a way to compel them to act. But this is actually over a little bit. Um, He's saying if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, in Roman law, you were supposed to only be able to slap somebody with an open, the front part of your paw. They, They had rules for how you could slap people officially. A Roman soldier or official, if one of the conquered people wasn't doing what they wanted to, under Roman law, could give them a a slap. 
But most people are right-handed. So if you're going to slap somebody, you're going to slap them on the left cheek. So the fact that he's saying, even if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, it means you've been backhanded. So even if the Romans break their own rules, so not only our rules, not only our sense of personal space where this person has just slapped you, and even if the Romans break their own rules, here's what you do. Here's how you get back at them. Off from the other cheek. Let them strike the other cheek instead. It's like, what? How does, how does that make sense? Well, here's another one. The Romans had a, had a deal that they could compel you to give something up. If there was something that they needed, that the idea is they were perpetually at war. And so if they needed something that you had, I need your hat, I need your sunglasses, I need your phone. Or in this case, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If someone wants to take your outer garment, and that's, that's the word that should be translated there, your outer garment, give them the one that you wear underneath that as well. Now, for Jewish people, this is especially offensive because one of the key things in Jewish law is that you could never make somebody give up their outer garment. In the law, it's like if somebody owes you money, you can't make them give up their outer garment because that was a really essential thing that people needed to have. Um, and you can't make them give that up. And so the Romans are breaking multiple levels of laws here. And so he says, when somebody does that to you, what do you do? You give them something else as well. Final one. If someone forces you to go a mile, go too. Again, in Roman law, they could compel somebody, hey, I need this carried and they could compel you to go up to one stadion, which wasn't quite a mile. It was about 1,300 meters, but almost a mile. And it's quicker to say a mile than it is to say a stadion, which is about 1,300 meters, which is almost a mile. So that's why we're just saying a mile, okay? Um, so the Romans could compel you to do that. And so Jesus is saying, when the Romans do this, and you're just thinking, man, this is so offensive, go a second mile. Take it a second mile. So this is, this is just like crazy stuff. And then he gives them one more. He says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, this is not Roman stuff. This is Jewish law. This is Deuteronomy, where Deuteronomy said that anytime an Israelite needs to borrow from another Israelite, you're supposed to do that. And so what he's telling the Israelites is just because we're in this extraordinary situation where the Romans are here, it doesn't mean our own rules no longer apply. You know how people are like that? Whenever they're in an extraordinary circumstance, they think all the rules are off. Like if you ever drop a kid off at school, and because it's just dropping off or I'm just here for a minute, have you noticed this? At school drop-off and at school pickup, people lose their minds. And I think it's, it's because of this basic situation, you know, that, that when I'm in an extraordinary situation, I'm entitled to ignore the rules. People, when they get sick, do this. Oh, I'm sick. I can't do this for myself. You need to do this. You know, we feel entitled when we're in a difficult situation. And yes, dropping kids off at, a, at an elementary school or, geez, a high school. By high school, I just gave up and would park like a block and a half away and tell the kids, you come find me. I'm not going to go over there because I'd go away just going, God, what is wrong with people? Anyway. So Jesus is saying, even in this extraordinary situation, the same rules apply to you. 
So the other ones don't go away. So Jesus is saying that when you're humiliated, when something is taken from you, when something you're coerced, here's how you respond. Now, every fiber in your being, when this happens, says, I've got to fix this. I can't allow this. This is wrong. It's wrong to me. And I have to stand up to this. I mean, that's, that's just how we are wired as human beings, is to say, it is my job at this point to stand up to this. And notice, though, that Jesus is not saying do nothing in response. Did you notice in response to each one? He says, if you're struck, it's not hide or do nothing. It's an affirmative sense. Turn and give them the other cheek. When somebody demands something from you, it's not just sit there passively. It's to actively hand them something else. If somebody compels you to go somewhere or coerces you to go an extra mile, it's not just, okay, I'll do it and then I'm done. It's to take, take active power and actually do the next step. That's where what Jesus is talking about here can actually be transformative to us. Not standing up to evil is not just passively sitting there and letting it happen. But it's using a power, a power that comes only from God, to take an active step in response. But it's not to strike back. It's not to argue. It's not to push, push the person away. But it's to take an affirmative step in the other way. And the best way, if you've been reading the book, that I think why you can do this is that when we are really in God's kingdom, what Jesus is saying is that we are people of wealth. That we have so much, we have so much going for us that it allows us to give in this difficult situation. It allows us to give. There's a great, and essentially what being in God's kingdom does is it gives you um, what people call walk away money. Have you ever heard that phrase where you have enough money that if people mess with you, you can just say, forget it, I'm out of here. And there is a kind of wealth that allows us to do that. And what, and what Jesus is saying here is that in the kingdom, we have that kind of wealth. Um, there's a great quote in the book, The Good and Beautiful Life, if you've been following along, from Miroslav Volf, who's somebody I had some classes with way back in the day, who I've read and really liked. Um, he has really helped me along the way um, come to grips with some things. And when he's talking about this kind of wealth that we have in Jesus that allows us to have some really bad things happen to us and to hang in there with us, he's not coming from an easy place. Um, Wolf was the son of Protestant pastors in Croatia when it was Yugoslavia. So he grew up a Christian in a communist country where it was very difficult to be a Christian. And he grew up a Protestant Christian in a country where their national identity is being Catholic. And so Wolf knows what it's like to be on the wrong end of power. And he's written a book that if you have a lot of coffee and a lot of attention, you could tackle sometime, called Exclusion and Embrace that is absolutely brilliant at how do we come to grips as God's people with the brokenness of humanity.
So he's a great guy. He was a great professor. I liked knowing him. He, um, he's now at the college where my son and daughter-in-law went. They didn't get a chance to take a class with him. But I was in New Haven one time, Chris's freshman year, and I saw Wolf talking down this, walking down the street. And I so wanted to talk to him. But I thought, how do you fanboy a theologian? You know, because his, his, his work had been so helpful to me. But do you stop a guy on the street and say, hey, what you wrote has just been so helpful? I probably should have, but instead, I chickened out. And now I'm telling you, I saw Miroslav Wolf on the streets of New Haven, Connecticut, but I didn't say anything. But Wolf says this. He says that what, if we truly understand that we are living in the kingdom of God, that we are fully under God's authority, as his sons and daughters, as heirs of that kingdom, We right now have all the riches that God wants to give us that we can have a rich soul, he calls it, or a rich self. Notice what he says here. He says, a rich self looks towards the future with trust because it gives rather than holding things back in fear of coming up short because it believes God's promises that God will take care of it. Each of those things that Jesus tells us to do when we are the victims of human brokenness are giving acts. And you can only give in that kind of way if you know you have a huge bank account. And what Wolf is trying to remind us here is that we do that. Do you remember one of the metaphors that Jesus used for the kingdom of God early on in one of John's first weeks. He says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. It really is a treasure. And if we have a sense that that treasure is ours, it gives us the wealth, it gives us that sense of being able to walk away that this circumstance is not final. That I have the resources to stand up to this. That I don't have to win this battle, because as soon as I leave here, I'm going to be great. But the kingdom of heaven is also like that it's so great that when a man found it, he hid it again, and in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. That phrase where he sold all he can. We're going to come back to that in a minute because this is how we get at that wealth, that treasure, that great thing that Jesus wants to give us. So Jesus goes on. He's kind of left his audience hanging a little bit because he's he's really told them something that's almost kind of impossible. If somebody slaps you in the face, and not just even in the legitimate way the Romans say they can, but an illegitimate way, that one that's not about power, but that you backhand somebody, it's about contempt as well. When somebody has compelled you to give up the thing that you're never supposed to give up, when someone has forced you and coerced you to do something that's really bad, how do you go forward with that? How do you give in that circumstance? So Jesus has left them and us hanging, and so now he goes on, to the next thing, about where we, how we actually live that out. So he says again, you have heard it said. So from the scriptures and the way that we talk about the scriptures, which is really a, a smart deal because that is really how we experience the Bible ourselves. We never just read the Bible. We're always reading the Bible in conversation with one another of what people, you've heard people like me say 
that it means. And so the Bible's never just itself. It's always a mix of what I've read, what people have told me it means, what, I've like it, what I would like it to mean, what I'm afraid it actually means and I'm trying to avoid. It's all of those things along the way. And so I, I appreciate that Jesus just doesn't say, it's written this, but that you've heard it said. He's putting it into that context. He's like, let's just be smart about how we all experience Scripture and how we've all experienced um, how God speaks. So you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And actually, this is, he's combining a couple things. The text in, in Leviticus is love your neighbor as yourself. But you've, that also gets added on that you're supposed to hate your enemy. There's nowhere explicitly in the Hebrew Bible where they're told to hate their enemies, but come on, that's just common sense, right? That's how people know. They're, they're my enemy. How, should I, how else should I treat them? And so Jesus is, is owning that and, and kind of speaking what people are already thinking. He says, but I tell you, in my kingdom, where you are my son or my daughter, where you are an heir of the king, where God is not just ruling someday, but ruling right now, in my kingdom where the wealth of the creator and maker of the universe is yours right now and the resources of our Lord and creator is available to you right now, here's how you live this out. Love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Wow. And there's even a slight threat here or condition that feels like a threat if you're not quite ready to do it. He says, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It's like, if you want all the good stuff, if you really do want to be God's son or daughter, this is how it goes. This is how we as God's people are going to live this one out. This is how it works, guys. This is not this, you know, okay, I'll I'll follow the Lord, I'll identify with him, but... It's not like loving your enemies is some extra level that only a few people do. He's actually saying that this is a basic condition to being one of God's people. He's essentially saying you're either all in or you're all out is how this works. If you want some of it, it, the kingdom of God is not a buffet line. You don't just get to show up and oh, pick one of those and one of those. and This one I especially like. I'll take two of these and I'll, I'll leave these other ones out. But he's saying, guys, this, this, one, this one counts. This one is really essential. And then he says this really interesting thing. He says, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So up to this point, the text has been assuming that Jesus has been assuming that we're the victims of the brokenness of the world. He's talking to people who have been on the wrong end of this. He's talking to people who have been hurt. But when he makes this point that God's, it goes on the righteous and the unrighteous, essentially what he's saying here, this is almost a, a, it was a basic saying from their time. But it's another way of saying, kind of, who knows who the righteous is and who the unrighteous are. What he's saying to us is don't be so sure that you're just among the persecuted, that you're just among the victim. He's saying that your job, and this is, this is why he tells us it's not our job to stand up to evil, because in so many circumstances in, my li- in our lives, 
How certain are you that you're the good guy and the other person is evil? How, cer- how certain are you in that hurtful situation that you're completely innocent and the other person is completely to blame? I know it feels that way. It's a very gratifying feeling when you get to that point. Isn't it? it kind of, it's a false empowerment, but it feels really empowered to feel like it's totally their fault and I am totally okay in this. But what Jesus is pointing out to us here is, guys, how often is that really the case? How often is it really the case that we are completely the victim and someone else is completely the oppressor, completely the hurtful one? Because in a sense, we are all broken. And so in a lot of times, what Jesus is telling us is that we're the Romans. Now, some of us are in circumstances where, you know, it's easy again to say, no, how could this be? Uh, Looking around the room, hardly any of us are shot callers in our lives. Hardly any of us are in that place where we have complete power over other people. Now, we've all experienced that. We've had teachers, we've had coaches, and when you're a teacher or a coach, you have a lot of that kind of authority. When I was a coach, I could tell kids to keep running until they threw up. I didn't try to make them throw up, but it would happen along the way. Um, it wasn't on purpose. And it was often because it's like, dude, if you're going to hammer a monster in Doritos five minutes before we get out here, what did you think was going to happen? But in any case, um, you do, we, sometimes we do have that kind of authority, but most of the time, we're not shot callers. We don't have that kind of power. But then we go home with our spouses, with our kids, with our parents. And when somebody loves you, they give you power over them. And so we become the person who has that ability to compel and coerce and sometimes even actually physically, but at least metaphorically slap and hurt. So we're all potentially there. Which is why Jesus is saying to us, it's not your job to stand up to evil because we're usually part of it ourselves. None of us is probably pure enough and okay enough to pull that one off. But what we are ready to do, Jesus says, is love and to pray. That we have that privilege, we have that authority He's saying that God's people now, we don't have the authority to fix other people, but what we do have the authority to do and the power to do is to love them. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. He makes this point. He says, look, it's kind of an obvious point, but he says, if you just love those that love you, what reward are you going to get? That's not, I mean, everybody who doesn't love people that love them? You know, when somebody really likes you and loves you and appreciates you, isn't that amazing the way that they, they immediately go up in your estimation? You know, somebody, was in my role, if somebody says, wow, you know, that was really helpful what you said, I immediately begin to think, that person is particularly insightful <laughs> to be able to do this. I mean, it's just, it's just how we work as human beings, right? When, when people love us, we love them. We like that. It, it's great. It's just, but... Even the tax collectors, the worst person you could think of, they do that. If you take a tax collector and tell him, man, you're an awesome tax collector, he's going to love you for that. 
And if we only greet our own people, and greeting here meant more than just, hey, what's up? But it involved a certain amount of engagement. But he says, are you doing any more than others? No, this is what all human beings do. And you are living in God's kingdom. You are a son or daughter of the king. You are empowered and enriched to live this incredible new and beautiful life, this good and beautiful life. And if all you're doing is loving the people that love you and greeting those that greet you, that's it? Come on, come on now. Don't even the pagans do that? So he says, here's what we're up to. And this is what we're supposed to do. He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, this word has freaked people out for a long time. You know, perfect's a hard word. But it's important to hear this in context. Again, what Jesus is talking about here, and this is why I wrote this in parentheses, he's really talking about being whole, of being the person that you were created to be, of experiencing all that God intends for you to be, of allowing him to actually change you and transform you and make you into the man or woman that he created you to be. That's what being whole is. That's what being perfect is. You know, at the beginning, we talked about avoiding evil or brokenness. Well, this is the counterpart to that. In a world where evil is mostly expressed in our own brokenness, what he's saying is, is that God wants to bring us into the wholeness that he's already exists, he already exhibits, that he already experiences. And he's trying to bring us in to that space. So how do we get at this? How do we get how do we live this life that Jesus wants to give for us? I think the first step is to understand our own wealth and the power that comes from wealth. There is a kind of fake power that we tend to run around. I mean, so Jesus is telling people that look, if you're really good with your fists, this isn't going to help you here. That if you're really good with arguing with the Romans, this isn't going to help you here anymore. And so understanding first and foremost that there is a new source of power that doesn't come from us. So another way to put this, if you are going to rely on the power that you walked in here with, you're not going to be able to step into the life that Jesus has for you that it doesn't come from the wealth that you have already in your pocket. It comes from the wealth that Jesus gives you. It doesn't come from the kinds of power that you know how to have. Sometimes the power we have is really good, and sometimes the power we have is, is almost, it's, it's kind of bad and malignant. Some of us are super hard workers, and some of us are smart and know how to figure things out. Some of us are incredibly good at being kind to people, and each of those has its own kind of power. But in our brokenness, all of us express power in other ways that are not helpful. We get angry. We get aggressive-aggressive. We get passive-aggressive and mess with people in all kinds of different ways. There are broken ways that we are used to exhibiting and holding on to. And what Jesus is telling us to hear is, you want to step into the full life that I have for you? You've got to set that stuff aside. Like in the story, the guy who found the treasure in the field went and sold everything he had in order to buy the treasure that God has for him. You can't stand up to a Roman slap in your own power, but you can with the power that Jesus wants to give you. That's what he's talking about here. And so it is setting your own wealth and your own power aside. And so... A big part of this is just being aware 
of the ways that we are powerful, of the kinds of power that we have. And some of us, it's, for all of us, it's going to be a mix of good things and broken things that we use to exert power over the people around us. And Jesus is saying, take a hard look at yourself and identify what those things are so you can begin to set them aside. This is really a zero-sum game. As much of your own power and your own wealth as you hold on to, you are blocking yourself out from that much of God's power and God's wealth that he wants to give you. So it begins by understanding what you already have in order to let it go. And it really does mean everything. And I've conflated two points. And so now, (laughs) I was going to talk about wealth and I was going to talk about power. And I just talked about both. You get out faster this way, so it's good for all of us. But then the thing that you can do. So the first step is identifying the sources of wealth and power that you hold on to, that you rely on. Let them go. And then what you can do affirmatively is begin to love. Now, some people in our lives, it's easy to love. Um, Last night was our family was together. Today is our daughter Katie's 21st birthday, which is shocking. I know Wendy and I were 14 when we started having kids. And so it's, it's just a Astounding that we have a 21-year-old and an almost 24-year-old now. Um, that was easy. The, and, the, and the love that we expressed, the six of us last night, her boyfriend was there, and Chris, our son and daughter-in-law, Allie, and Wendy and I were there. And it was, it was just, it was an amazing time. I mean, Wendy and I are, have just, since we were done, have been looking at each other and going, did that? Did that really happen? I mean, it was, it was just so cool. And we are just so, so grateful for this. But that's easy. You love your kids. I mean, some, sometimes it's, and our, our kids have been easy to love. And I understand that those relationships can get other ways. And with my parents, it was, I was not as easy to love as my kids have been for me. So I understand some of that along the way. But that's the easy part. But if you want to step into the good and beautiful life that God has for you, it means loving people that are hard to love. Not just because they annoy you, but because they've hurt you. I mean, that's what he's talking about here. Not because, are they going to listen to that song again? Why do they always drive like this? You know? The toothpaste cap, again, is here on the counter. Right next to the toothpaste tube. How hard is it to put it back... It's not just that. But it might start with that. So here's the thing. You have power and you have wealth beyond your imagining. But to get to it, you've got to let go of the power and wealth that you already have. And you'll begin to access, you'll begin to fill up what God wants to do when you begin to love. So here's what I want you to think about. I want you to identify two people in your life. I want you to identify somebody that is easy to love. 
And over the next three days, I want you to love them. Do things that they will perceive as loving. It could be something, it could be an action, it could be... So in my case, instead of leaving it up to the cats to vacuum, I will vacuum (laughs) tomorrow, okay? It can be an action, it can be a word, it can be a touch. But what I want you to do is identify somebody in your life that it is easy to love and practice loving them for three days. For the next four days of the week, I want you to identify somebody who is hard to love and take that momentum that you had with somebody that was easy and do it. Bless them, help them, honor them, all the things that make for love. And pray for them. Pray that God would do the very best for them. This is one of those things, friends, that's hard. Not like calculus is hard. Hard to do. Easy to understand. Hard to do. But absolutely transformative if we can do it. So friends, let's love. 